Hello and welcome. I hope you enjoy our service today and I hope more than that you're really blessed by thinking about God's word and by enjoying the hymns that we've selected. I wonder if any of you remember or ever knew this little ditty. Trusty, loyal and helpful, brotherly, courteous, kind, obedient, smiling, thrifty, clean in thought, word and mind. Does it ring any bells? Well, I was in the Boy Scouts, you see, when I was younger, and that's the way I was taught to remember the 10 Scout rules for life. Amazing that it's still there after all these years. I'm sure the Boys Brigade and the Guides had their own versions of that. Rules for life. Today we're going back to the rule of life that God gave, the 10 Commandments. I think there'll be some surprises along the way, although not to me because obviously I'm a Boy Scout so I was taught to be prepared. Let's begin with a great hymn of worship, Holy, Holy, Holy.
Let's pray. Dear Lord and Father, thank you that you promise us that where two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus, you are there with us. We're sure that applies when two or three or a hundred are gathered with phones, TVs, computers, written sheets, but in a mysterious way, still with one another and with you. Lord, we welcome you amongst us today and we celebrate the gift of life that you have lavished upon each of us. We ask that you would open our ears so that we may hear your voice. Open our minds so that we may receive your eternal wisdom. Open our spirits so that we may know you leading and you guiding. And open our hearts so that we may receive your wonderful love. We recognise a mixture of hope and fear that characterises our lives in these days. And we know also the challenges and the losses that many struggle with. Forgive us, Lord, that our faith is sometimes shaken. Forgive us that we're not always quick to comfort and stand alongside those in need. May we know the power of your forgiveness. May we know the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and may we share his presence and his compassion with those around us. We ask all this in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen. Our first reading is Psalm 19. Sarah Wardle reads it for us. And after that we'll listen to a really old but still wonderful song based on that psalm. Psalm 19 For the Director of Music, a Psalm of David The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. 
In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise a simple. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Judgments of the Lord are true and righteous all together. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. So let's hear our second reading, still on the theme of God's law. Sarah reads the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 to 17. The Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labour, and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, 
nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbour. Almighty God, your laws, your commands and your promises are life and light to our hearts and our spirits. In submission to you, we find perfect freedom. We long for your laws to be fully written on our hearts. We long to become attentive to your commands. We long for your promises to be fulfilled in our lives and in your world. Almighty God, Father, Son and Spirit, we worship you. Amen. And now a reading from the Gospel of John. John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. Jesus clears the temple courts. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he has spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. The cleansing of the temple by Jesus took place right after Palm Sunday at the beginning of the last week of Jesus's life. But John places the story right at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. I'm pretty sure John wasn't confused or forgetful. He was placing the events of Jesus's life in an order 
that made sense to the message which he was trying to portray. If you read the whole of John's Gospel, you see the whole picture building up until he comes to the very end of his Gospel and he basically says, Jesus did all these things and many more, but I've written these down so that you might believe who he is and what he came to do. In reality, the whole of Jesus's ministry was an extended cleansing of the temple, correcting and rebuking the religious leaders who'd allowed God's law to be brought into disrepute by their lives and by their actions. They overturned God's beautiful law and made it into something that it wasn't. Just as Jesus overturned the tables of the merchants and moneylenders, they had overturned God's law. This was one of the most dramatic confrontations that Jesus had with the established order of things. But most of his conflicts were with the scribes and the Pharisees, the self-appointed guardians of the law. And many of his miracles took place in a context and on a particular day, the Sabbath, when they were guaranteed to stir up opposition and to provoke conflict. He was accused of ignoring the law. He healed on the Sabbath. He permitted his disciples, excused his disciples for plucking ears of corn on a Sabbath day. It was this conflict with the established religious leaders that was in God's plan. The reason the excuse for the Pharisees in partnership with groups of other people political opposition to Jesus to bring him to trial to force the Roman authorities to take action and to kill the one in the end who brought the very law into being. I've got some sympathy for the Pharisees for them, the law, the very word spoken by God, was supreme. They were its guardians, its interpreters. At their best, they were striving to maintain the integrity of God's commands and God's ways and God's faith in a culture which was under attack politically from Rome. They were under the subjugation of the Roman Empire and culturally and philosophically from Greek ideas that were pervasive throughout the empire and from the remnants of the, the old religions that still clung on in different corners of Israel? Did they despair that the law of God, the truth of God, was being devalued and neglected? As we explore this very well-known passage from Exodus, we'll get a clear sense of how much God's law meant to them but we'll also see how far they had deviated from the real heart of the law and how that made conflict with the Messiah, the Christ, inevitable. Along the way, we'll also start to understand the significance of the law in God's plan of salvation. I hope you'll, like me, have an aha moment as some of Paul's very complicated and theological and dense uh, writing in Romans starts to make sense. So let's start by looking at the text of the Ten Commandments that we just heard read to us. I think the first thing to look at is 
the interesting stage or time when the Ten Commandments were actually given to the people of Israel. Why now? After all, it was several hundred years since God had called Abraham to be the founder of the nation. Why now? Straight away, we could nod towards what Paul says in Romans. He explains at length that God's calling to Abraham was not based on a requirement that he obey a certain set of commands from God. It was based on the promise from God that he would make of Abraham a great nation and a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And Abraham's response was, Paul tells us, he believed God and it was counted as righteousness. Before there was ever a law, before God made any demands, he chose Abraham, he promised him a future and he made him the friend of God. So the law wasn't for Abraham the way in which he became accepted by God and came into relationship with God. It was a consequence of that relationship. This is reinforced by the opening words of the Ten Commandments. See what it says. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The law is given after God redeems his people. These are not instructions about how they could make themselves acceptable to God and gain his favour. They were laws on how to live fully the life of freedom which God had destined for his people. Now it might seem a bit strange to talk about freedom in the context of the Ten Commandments. Talk to anyone about the Ten Commandments and their first response is to say, oh it's just a series of thou shalt nots. But actually if you turn them around a little bit, you'll see the freedom that they bring into a society which respects and obeys them. Thou shalt not steal. The freedom from losing your goods and being mugged on the street. Thou shalt not kill the freedom from being murdered. Thou shalt not commit adultery. The freedom from fear of marriages being destroyed by outsiders. Honour the Sabbath day, do no work. The freedom from the exploitation of workers and the incessant demand for making money. I could cope with a few of these thou shalt nots in our society today, to be honest. Jesus famously used some of these commandments and applied them to the inner life, not just to the outward actions. Remember in the Beatitudes, he said, you've heard it said of old, thou shalt not kill. But I say to you, if you harbour hatred in your heart towards your brother, you have committed murder. You might get the impression from that that the Ten Commandments are just about behaviour, not attitudes. But clearly that's not the case. The last commandment, for example, is all about the heart. Do not covet. All our wrong behaviours come out of wrong thinking. James tells us that we have a wrong thought in our heart. We covet something or we desire to do something and we harbour it and we allow it to build up. And eventually it spills out in wrong behaviours, in an action or in an, un an unkind word that reveals what we've been mulling over all this time, this evil that we've been harbouring in our hearts. 
And remember, the commandments actually start off with, Thou shalt love the Lord your God. That cuts straight to the heart. It also shows us, actually right at the beginning, the impossibility of following these commandments fully. How can you love the Lord your God with all your heart? We'll come back to that later. But the Lord of God, symbolised and expressed in these Ten Commandments, was not just designed by God as a helpful manual for how to live a free and fulfilled life. God's law expresses God's character. We heard Psalm 19 being read to us. And when you look at it and see the structure of it, something interesting comes out. The writer begins with the glory of God as revealed in the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God. And he talks about the wonders of creation and how God is reflected in them. He then moves on to talk about the law of God and that's not a kind of a disjunction or a jump from one subject to another. What's he saying? He's saying, first of all, that the law of God is as fixed and as permanent as the heavens. God doesn't change his mind about right and wrong. Second, he's saying that the law of God is an expression of his glory, just as the heavens are. Gaze into the heavens. Be amazed at what you see. Lose yourself in the depths of the wonders of God's majesty. But also gaze at God's revelation of himself in the Bible. Gaze at his commandments. Gaze at his laws. You'll find the same majesty. And just as we'll never comprehend the greatness, the infinity of the universe, so there's no end to the beauty and the depth of God's law. For an example of this, have a look at Psalm 119. It's not necessarily clear in translation, but the psalmist has worked and labored on this. He's carefully constructed a poem in the Hebrew form. Each of the sections begins with a different letter of the alphabet. You might have wondered what those little headings were at the beginning of each paragraph. Well, that's what they are. They're the Hebrew letter, which all the subsequent verses begin with. And every verse without fail contains a reference to the law of God, a synonym of God's law, testimonies, commandments, instructions, rules. The psalmist has spent hours and exerted all his poetic ability to exalt the law of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, wise, infinitely beautiful. So no wonder the Pharisees and the scribes devoted their lives to studying it, teaching it and upholding it. So where did it all go wrong? The Pharisees who encountered Jesus had a high regard for the law, but they'd lost sight of its real purpose, to train our hearts and minds to seek God. They sought to live by the letter of the law. They hedged it around with artificial barriers and regulations to keep people distant from any chance that they might do anything wrong. They created a situation where without years of study, it was impossible to even know what the law required let alone fulfil its demands. 
And of course, this all created a spirit of arrogance, a spirit of uniqueness and a spirit of uh, self-righteousness. Remember the blind man healed by Jesus who was interrogated by the Pharisees. When he challenges them with his testimony, their response is, you are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they used the law really as a cloak for their evil ways. Outwardly, the Pharisees obeyed the myriad laws to the letter, tithing even the herbs that grew in their gardens. But in their hearts, they were rotten. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful, but inside they're full of the bones and the dead and of all kinds of filth. The appearance of righteousness appealed to them, but their driving passions were public adulation and self-righteousness. You see this again and again in Jesus's interactions with them and even in the parables he told about them. Remember the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee at prayer and the Pharisee is up the front praying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not like this sinner here. When they see Jesus dining with tax collectors and being attended to by a prostitute, they're appalled. Such people don't belong. They should be excluded from God's presence, not included. We saw another example of this in our gospel reading, of course. Even their temple worship was tainted by money-making. God's house was to be a house of prayer for all nations, inclusive and welcoming. But it was given over to making money out of those who came to worship. The suggestion is that this marketplace to, was set up in the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, the one place where non-Jews were allowed to come. So they were being excluded from the only place that they were permitted to, to attend. Arrogance, pride, self-righteousness, exclusivity. Thankfully, the church isn't like that. Well, we hope it isn't. But here's something in the story of the Good Samaritan parable that we often skip over, which goes to the heart of what the Pharisees believed about the law. This is how Luke tells it. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what's written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbour as yourself. And he said to him, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to just himself, justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? Did you notice that? The lawyer wasn't wanting to learn something, to find out how to live a better life. He was wanting to justify himself. At its heart, the Pharisees saw the law as a way to earn acceptance with God. 
but they ended up being very clear examples of what happens when God's righteous law collides with fallen human nature. We find ways of making ourselves believe that we're doing the right thing, but inside everything's a mess. We have that nagging feeling that whatever we do, it's not enough. Those with insight, those prepared to listen, knew there had to be a better way. Think of Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Jesus answered his unspoken question, the thing he really wanted the answer to. You must be born again. Trying to improve and perfect our lives and make ourselves acceptable to God is a dead end. We need a new life. So let's hear from another Pharisee. In fact, someone who calls himself a Pharisee of the Pharisees, who studied under Gamaliel, one of the most famous teachers of the law. Yeah, the Apostle Paul. He writes in Romans that the quest to become righteous before God by following the law is doomed to failure. That's not its purpose. We already saw how the law came after God's promise and Abraham's faith, not before. The law is God's gift to a redeemed people, not a barrier to keep out all but the best performers, and certainly not a stepladder to allow ourselves to climb up to God. So what does the law do? Well, first, Paul says, it reveals sin. How would we identify covetousness as an evil unless the law told us, thou shalt not covet? And then it reveals our own sinfulness. It provokes us to disobey. Right at the start of human history, God says to Adam and Eve, don't eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what do they do? Well, they eat the fruit from the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As soon as God tells us to do something, we sense that rebellion in our hearts and we realize the presence and power of sin in our lives. Those of us who've had, have kids won't be at all surprised by this. However young they are, as soon as you tell them, don't do this, sure enough, they do it. It brings to mind our lad Steve, and it's his birthday today. He's 48. When he was about eight, we were in Wales. It was a horrible, wet day. We were on holiday. It rained every day. We went into, I don't know, Newtown or somewhere like that, and we parked in a car park. And on the edge of the car park, there was, well, more or less an open sewer, whether it was a drainage ditch or whatever it was. So as soon as I saw that, I said, Stephen, don't go near that drainage ditch. We just about managed to get the prams out of the back and get the, the younger kids parked in them and organised when this bedraggled figure appears from a few yards away completely caked in mud from the waist downwards to such an extent that it was wasn't possible to even clean him up so our first trip was to a local shop to buy a pair of trousers and throw the old ones away 
don't do this it just provokes us to want to do something wrong and that's just a, a small picture of the way sin is at work in our lives Paul, Paul tells us about this he explores it in detail in Romans chapter 7 there he says is the law of God I recognise it to be what it is perfect, wholesome a thing of joy and yet there's another law at work in me driving me to act in ways I loathe rejecting the good and seeking the bad he cries out wretched man that I am who will rescue me from this body of death well he goes on there's a new law at work in those who trust in Christ God has done what the law could not do he sent his son to deal with sin once and for all God's law shows us our imperfection and presents an insurmountable obstacle to living a perfect life in God's sight. In that way, it points us away from our own striving and away from our own guilt and towards the grace and forgiveness of God. Paul says in Galatians that the law is our tutor, our guardian, our disciplinarian to lead us to Christ. The old authorised version which I grew up with says the law is our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. It teaches us that we can't do it by ourselves and holds us in check until we discover the truth. Remember a few weeks ago when we talked about the transfiguration, one of the two people who met with Jesus on the mountaintop was Moses, the lawgiver. He faded away and the disciples were left to look at Jesus only. That symbolised something that Jesus said repeatedly. He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfil it. By his complete lifelong obedience to God's commands, he became a full and perfect sacrifice for sin. Only an innocent person could die for a guilty one because they have no guilt of their own. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gates of heaven and let us in. And by faith in Christ, we release the Holy Spirit into our lives. And there's a new law at work in us. Not the old law, which brought condemnation and frustration, but the new law, which brings life, health and the power to live holy lives. And yet... Somewhere deep inside us is the ingrained belief that we're not really free from the law. We might hope that we won't suffer its penalty, but somehow we believe that we can't have God's acceptance and approval unless we at least try to measure up to God's standards. The Ten Commandments still weigh down on us. Surely God demands certain standards from me. Our hope is that if we strive to do our best, he'll let us off with the failures. God loves a trier. It's deeply ingrained in us that what we do right will somehow be offset against what we do wrong. So we strive to do what's right to keep the balance on our side. I don't know if you ever saw the comedy series on Netflix about the afterlife called The Good Place. Very weird in some ways, and, but quite interesting and particularly the first episode. In this extract, 
Ted Danson, the host of The Good Place, explains how people end up there. Uh, hello everyone, and welcome to your first day in the afterlife. You were all, simply put, good people. But how do we know that you were good? How are we sure? During your time on Earth, every one of your actions had a positive or a negative value, depending on how much good or bad that action put into the universe. Every sandwich you ate, every time you bought a magazine, every single thing you did had an effect that rippled out over time and ultimately created some amount of good or bad. You know how some people pull into the breakdown lane when there's traffic and they think to themselves, ah, who cares, no one's watching. We were watching. Surprise! <laughs> anyway, when your time on Earth has ended, we calculate the total value of your life using our perfectly accurate measuring system. Only the people with the very highest scores, the true cream of the crop, get to come here, to the good place. What happens to everyone else, you ask? Don't worry about it. The point is, you are here because you lived one of the very best lives that could be lived. And you won't be alone. Your true soulmate is here too. That's right, soulmates are real. One of the other people in your neighborhood is your actual soulmate, and you will spend eternity together. So welcome to eternal happiness. Welcome to the good place. Sponsored by otters holding hands while they sleep. You know the way you feel when you see a picture of two otters holding hands? That's how you're going to feel every day. Does any of that ring a bell? Do we sometimes half suspect it might be a little bit like that? Please, today, get rid of that nonsense. Recognise that there's nothing that you can do that will earn you a relationship with God. Not the labours of my hands can fulfil thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin would not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. You have no choice but to put your faith in Christ who died for you. There's then no need to fit for fear or uncertainty. Jesus said in John's Gospel, Very truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come under judgment but has passed from death to life and on that basis like the children of Israel delivered from slavery we can enjoy and exult in living the kind of life that God desires not because we have to but because we want to
let's pray for ourselves and for others we're using today the words of the lord's prayer as a structure and a basis for our prayers our father who art in heaven when we come to you we come to one who sees all and who rules over all and to one who claims us as his children hallowed be thy name before we ask anything lord we praise and bless you for who you are thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven we desire to see your name recognized and exalted throughout the earth as ruler of all and to see your laws and commandments written on all hearts Give us this day our daily bread. Our needs are sometimes very simple, but you care for all of them. May we include in us all those who are hungry, oppressed, homeless and sick. Give us this day what we need. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. After life itself, our most basic need is to know that you look upon us with love and grace. We need your forgiveness each day. Help us to extend that same forgiveness to those who have wronged or disappointed us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There are evils which we seek out for ourselves and others that come upon us uninvited. Lord, keep us in the time of trial and may we be victors in you. For thine 
is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Whether or not we see your kingdom come in its fullness in our days, in our land, we know you are the king. And we trust in you to bring glory to yourself as your kingdom grows in all places, at all times. Amen. Now our final hymn, an updated version of To God be the glory, great things he hath done, so loved he the world that he gave us his son.
close with a blessing. May God write his laws on our hearts and may we serve and love him only for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you.